Hi, this is Liz. I just wanted to pop in before episode three in the next four chapters of All About You to thank everyone who's reached out to me personally to share how much they're enjoying the podcast or to share their own adoption stories with me, which has been really, really cool. I created a Facebook page called All About You, An Adopted Child Story. And if you want to pop in over there and join up with us and you can start a discussion, you can talk about what you like about the book. You can talk about similar experiences you've had in your own life. I had someone send me a picture of their adoption baby book that looked exactly like mine. It's really very cool. So join us over there. I also have an Instagram. It's Liz Butler Duran, where you can also see pictures from the book. But if you want to see all the pictures from the book. You can follow my Patreon, All About You, An Adopted Child Story. Also, if you just want to hear this whole book and not wait week to week, head on over to the Patreon and the audiobook is for sale and you can download it immediately and finish the book today. Also, if you're one of those readers who wants a book in their hand, head on over to Amazon. My book is available in paperback and on Kindle. It's easiest to find it because Amazon is a huge source. So it's easiest to search Liz Butler Duran in your Amazon search bar and it'll pop right up for you. I hope y'all are looking forward to having a wonderful holiday season with all the people you love, whether it's the family you were born into or the family you have created. And until next week, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a little review on the Apple or the Spotify or wherever you're enjoying this podcast. All About You is a memoir. I have tried to recreate events, locales, and conversations from my memories of them. In order to maintain their anonymity, in some instances, I have changed the names of individuals and places. I may have changed some identifying characteristics and details, such as physical properties, occupations, and places of residence. Chapter 9. Can I get a witness? I moved along in my young life, constantly watching and listening and starting to notice all the ways I was different. I carefully documented these differences in my many precious moments diaries. I would fill them with overly dramatic interpretations of my life and times. I often thought of running away. That would solve everything. I could hide out in my girlfriend's homes, living in closets, and surviving on scrap food they brought me from their dinner tables. Exactly what I would do after that was never really clear, but it didn't matter. It was the thrill of escape that piqued my interest. Of course, The next exciting moment would be the thrill of reunion, where tears were shed and I was begged to return to the household, promised all the love and attention I needed. Maybe I could get a new wardrobe while I was at it. There were moments when I thought that there would be a certain phase of my life during which my mother and I would bond. I still have these moments. I would finally have the key to unlock her heart. This would be the moment that would make us friends, our little secret. We would share secret glances my brother could never understand. The closer I got to 12, the more I thought this would happen. This was the transformative year when I would become a woman, according to all the hype. My girlfriends were all coming to me with the embarrassing moment they had with their mothers and the long talks that followed about their bodies. I ewed and rolled my eyes with all of them, but secretly, I hoped for this moment. I could handle the embarrassment. This would break the ice. I'll never forget the day I came home from school to find a pamphlet on my bed. 
there was a drawing of a girl on a bicycle, her ponytail flying out behind her as she metaphorically cycled into her future. She seemed very happy about it, and her hair was fabulous. Under the pamphlet was a box of maxi pads and a strange-looking elastic belt. This was my introduction to womanhood. This was my moment. Lost. Every Monday afternoon, from the time I was nine until I was 13, I was in Ms. Schreibman's house for piano lessons promptly at 3 p.m. Her piano was in the front room of the house, and I remember being in a bright, sunny room with a large bay window at my back. Oh, how the light and shadows danced across the piano from that window, tempting me to look around to see what was going on outside. Mrs. Schreibman grew to love me, and I her, very much. She was thrilled with my natural piano abilities, and she delighted in hearing the far-flung stories that I had done throughout the week since our last lesson. She called me her star, and I believed her. Upon discovering that I liked to sing, she had a present for me the following Monday, a songbook from the musical Annie. She wanted to hear me sing Tomorrow. I was terribly shy, and I didn't do it until she left the room so I wouldn't feel her staring at me. Now, I couldn't just sing... I could sing. I surprised myself as much as Mrs. Schreibman, and she insisted that I perform this at our next recital. I didn't tell a soul for two reasons. One, I could still chicken out. And two, I didn't want anyone at home to second-guess this decision and make me worry that I would embarrass anyone if I couldn't carry a tune. The day of the recital came. We met in a small hall at the local music store in downtown Charleston. I don't remember a thing about what the room looked like. I was so in my head crazy nervous. I was the next to last to perform, so I had even longer to worry about it. The worst part was when my classmate, Dick Rieger, walked into the room. His younger sister was also a student of Mrs. Schreibman's. This was a disaster. If I messed up, I would not just be the laughingstock of all the other pianists. News of the fiasco would inevitably get back to my school. I walked up to the piano and played my first piece, the one chosen to show off my newest abilities. Then came tomorrow. Introduction. Sing. I remember glancing quickly at Dick Rieger before I opened my mouth. He was wearing a brown sport coat and was looking down at his program, the pain of boredom all over his face. With the first note that I belted out, his head whipped up along with those of so many other previously resigned parents and siblings. At the end of my solo, everyone in the room burst into surprise applause. I was intoxicated with the attention. I was doing something that was special, and I knew it. Now, I had something Jonathan didn't have. I didn't have to just be like him. I could just be me. This was such a feeling of relief for me. My burden of second best was lifted. Soon after that, I was asked by a member of our church to recite a monologue at the Christmas pageant to be held in the fellowship hall one Sunday evening before the holidays. Mrs. Yuji was my Sunday school teacher, and she saw firsthand my flair for the dramatic, my star quality. I eagerly accepted. She invited me to her house one afternoon for rehearsals. Miss Yuji's family owned all the Krispy Kreme donut shops in town. Her house was big and beautiful with many windows that looked over a vast acreage. And it smelled like a donut. That was heaven right there. Mrs. Yuji was very excited about the show. I was good at memorizing things. My years at the piano had prepared me for that. Elizabeth! 
Elizabeth, you are doing a wonderful job. Why, you are just a natural-born actress, she declared, delighted with my run-through and interpretation of the little piece. Thank you. I could feel myself blushing my ears on fire. I will be able to say I knew her well once you are famous. After Miss Yuji's death, the family sold the house and all the property to the local hospital. The house still stands, but the beauty around it is all but gone. The towering hospital building shadows that lovely home. Today, this property sits across the street from my children's elementary school, and I think of sweet and gracious Mrs. Yuji often. But in the South, your family is defined by its drama. This is why it's tucked away so deeply in a family's emotional vault. Not only is it never spoken of, it can be entirely denied with believability. Yet someone always remembers. They sigh deeply and look at something just past you and let the drama unfold. I heard that one of Miss Yuji's sons had developed a psychosis and that had him returning home to have her care for him. One morning he had a relapse and pulled a knife on his mother. She ended up running across the street to the school in her nightgown screaming for help. I looked forward to my performance that night to show my family that I was ready to be a star. How could school be the most important thing if I had all this talent just waiting to be discovered? Surely this would be an eye-opener for them, too. This is what we can do with Elizabeth, they will think. I remember doing that little monologue at the church and seeing my father sitting on the aisle because he was leaning over so far to make sure he saw everything I did, I was afraid he would fall out of the chair. I'd found my calling, something I loved, and I was good at it. I no longer had to compete with my brother. Phew, because that was not working out so well. I would never be as smart as he or as studious, but that no longer mattered. I would be the family actress and singer. Now what? It was a frustrating time for me, having all these creative ideas and not knowing how to harness them. I begged to be sent to acting classes, but my family considered that a waste of money. It was more important not to make a spectacle of oneself. My job, as Elizabeth Butler, was to go to school, be a straight-A student, and go to college, where I would meet my husband, get married, and raise children who would be straight-A students, continuing the cycle. My opportunity to be just important to my parents as Jonathan was slipping away. Why couldn't I make them understand? As I traveled through my childhood, drama never left me. I embraced it. When my mother tuned in to Days of Our Lives, I would sneak into the room to watch, peeking behind the brown plaid recliner, spying on the lives of the residents of Salem. Daddy let me stay up late to watch Dallas on Friday nights. I was fascinated with the stories of these people. I knew no one like them. These characters and their adventures painted even richer colors on the backdrop of my imaginative play. When they were falling in love, so was I. When they were in danger, I would act that out too. I would arrive at the dinner table late, dramatic entrance, please, wearing every piece of jewelry I owned and some sort of gown. Don't we dress for dinner? Are we farmers? I would be greeted with stares and laughter and the occasional, where did you get the lipstick? Well, it made my eyes bluer, didn't it? Take it off. For years, when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, Dr. Marlena Evans. Her character was the beautiful psychiatrist on my mother's soap opera. Most of my family thought that meant I wanted to be a doctor. No, I just wanted to play one on TV. Then there was Tammy Amerson. Tammy 
Amerson was the local it child. She was just one year younger than I was, but she appeared on all the telethons on TV. She was on the local news as minor successes began to come her way, smaller parts on TV and in small budget movies. Every time she came on TV, my mother would just gush, Oh, there is that Tammy Amerson, Mom would say, stopping whatever she was doing to watch her, to look at her. I could do that, I suggested. How do you get to be on those shows? I can sing and play the piano, too. Oh, Elizabeth, you're no Tammy Amerson. I hated Tammy Amerson, not just because she was talented, although she was. I hated her because my mother loved her. My mother was impressed with her talents and just knew she would be a star. Keep an eye on that one, she would say. She'll be someone someday. Well, what about me? Why couldn't my mother see what Tammy's mother saw? I was here and ready to go. Look at me and see that I'm different and tell me that it's okay. Chapter 10, Spirit I had an aunt on my mother's side, Betty, or Liz, as she liked to be called later. I totally got that, just like me. But old habits are hard to break, and I still called her Aunt Betty. She was my favorite. She was a bit of a scandal in the family, having divorced my great-uncle, not to mention that my great-uncle was not her first husband. Well, ah, the smell and salts. She was beautiful explains the trail of broken hearts left behind her. She was sweet, and she adored me. She kept up with everything I did. When I was acting in local theater, she clipped every review of mine from the paper and saved it for me. She once wrote a letter to the editor of our newspaper praising the show I was in and my performance. She never missed an opportunity to support me and love me. I often wonder if she saw a kindred spirit in me, as we both were very different from this family we had been brought into, our flamboyance and adventurous spirits setting us apart. She came to see one of my first theatrical leading roles. I was 19 and playing Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker. After the show, I came out of the backstage door. Aunt Betty was standing there waiting for me. I saw her first, with her perfectly coiffed light brown hair and her meticulously applied makeup that made her lively eyes sparkle and shine. She had tears in those eyes when she wrapped me in the warmest embrace, going on and on about how proud she was of me. She attended the show with her dear friend, Dr. James Ward, a deliciously flamboyant, deeply Southern man who spoke softly with his lyrical accent, but gestured wildly with his hands to emphasize any point he was making. He was one of our family doctors from the old village, and I had seen him as a child. He, too, filled my fragile ego with praise and sweet words. Elizabeth, he said, I am so proud of you for breaking out of your shell and doing this. Your parents tried so hard to make you shy. He leaned in closer and whispered in my ear, I knew it wouldn't work. Many years later, when I lost my dad, my Aunt Betty called to make sure I was okay. You know I love you, sweet girl. I'm coming over to bring you a dinner. I know everyone is bringing food to your mother's house, but I want you to have something too. Thank you, Aunt Betty. I was grateful to hear from her in my sadness. I do feel so lost without him. I don't know how I'm going to get over it. I'm so glad you called. Your daddy loved you so much, Elizabeth, and he was always so proud of you. I started to cry. Look here, 
You know your mother is too. She can't help it if she doesn't know how to say it. But we all know she loves you deeply. I'm proud of you too, you know. Now that your daddy is gone, I'm going to be your number one fan. I loved the sound of her voice, deep and gravelly with years of cigarette smoke waiting dangerously in her lungs. Yes, ma'am, I accept. I laughed. You know what I love about you the most. Oh, Lord, I really laughed now. You've been through a lot. You've had some disappointments, and you made your fair share of mistakes. But no matter what, you always bounced back. You are a strong Southern woman, born and raised in Dixie. You bloom wherever you are planted. No one in my family had ever, to that day, put a positive spin on all my failures. Her words still rise up in my mind whenever I doubt myself, or whenever I feel lost, or ever think of giving up. In 2016, I turned 48 years old, or as I prefer, 12 in leap years. I had an app on my iPhone that offered daily inspirational quotes. Much to my delight, this note popped up on my birthday, a special message from Aunt Betty. It said, Today, I fulfill my creative side. I know I can bloom wherever I am planted. Thanks, Aunt Betty. Chapter 11, Docket Number 022968, Nature vs. Nurture I was 12. It was time for another family portrait. I spent every night in the time between its announcement and the actual date, combing my hair every night, 100 strokes. I hoped and prayed that it would grow even just a little so I could wear a pretty barrette or comb in my hair and look like all the other girls. I was prepared for this picture and spent all afternoon trying to sneak makeup on my face. I secretly slipped some lip gloss into my bag. Cover girl, barely nude. Earlier in the week, I hopped on my bicycle and rode to the Eckerd drugstore by my house to buy it. But the checkout lady, Mrs. Denny, knew my parents and wouldn't sell it to me, knowing they would disapprove of makeup at my young age. Seriously? This woman had a granddaughter who did beauty pageants and had been wearing lipstick and rouge since she was 18 months old. She couldn't sell me lip gloss? It was nude, for heaven's sakes, not cherry red. I could have smeared Vaseline on my lips and gotten the same shine. I just wanted something grown up that sparkled in the light and didn't smell like a scraped elbow or an old bandage. Real lip gloss had the smell of adulthood and freedom. It sat on your lips right below your nose and filled your mind with womanly wiles. Didn't it? I had to sneak off and pedal in the last warm days of summer to the other side of town to find a drugstore where I could buy it without being scolded. Maybe just two miles, but dear God, I bet Tammy Amerson never had to do this. The heat and my perspiration frizzing the ends of the two inches of hair surrounding my head. That had to be a sight for the poor checkout girl who probably thought, oh dear, she's going to need a lot more than lip gloss. <laughs> my mother hated this picture. The photographer said something funny. You could see my brother smirking. I, of course, would never break character. Mom is laughing with her teeth showing. She hated having her teeth show in pictures. She had braces as a child, but after they removed them, her teeth went back to their original disarray, and she always smiled differently for pictures because of this. Despite all the imperfections in this latest forced family portrait, what I saw, again, was me. I would place my hand on the photograph to cover my image to see the real family how clearly they belonged to one another. 
lifting my hand again to see the butlers and their British foreign exchange student, Cordelia McDifferent. It reminded me of how I had felt two years ago, and the old whispers were back in my head. Look closely. Don't you see it? This explains everything. This explains why they don't understand the dreams you have. You are different from them. Look close. Look closer. The photo was shared with family, who went on and on about my brother, the only biological child of the family. He strongly possessed his parents' genes. Everyone in the family loved to comment on his resemblance to my dad. I will never forget the debate at Mamie's house over this picture. The ants were gathering about, filling the air with scents of rose water and body powder, debating whom he looked more like, his mother or his father. How grown up! How handsome! Eventually, my great-aunt, Mary Louise, leaned towards me and said, Well, who do you look like, Elizabeth? I looked right at her and I said, No one, I guess. It was not heard by anybody but her, so there was no great moment of general unease, but she looked confused for just the slightest moment and stumbled in her reply. Well, you look just like you, and isn't that lovely? And whatever had planted itself in my heart all those years ago got a little bigger. I started sharing these feelings with my friends, and they either got on board with this new mystery because, hey, it's drama and every teen girl likes that, or they called me crazy. Every time I thought about it, it grew into a bigger idea, and I would ask again, are you sure? I chose random times to broach this tender subject. I also learned very quickly never ever to ask my mother again. Anytime I made a comment, I was cut off quickly and abruptly. Mom had a short fuse and a quick temper, and the rambunctious, opinionated child that I was tested this on many occasions. Oh, Elizabeth! The exasperation in her voice. I hear it as if it were just yesterday. I just wish you would settle down. I don't understand why you insist on this behavior. Well, then I see. I guess I must be adopted, I would reply in my irritation with her. Electricity would crackle behind her eyes, which locked onto me, frozen in aggravation. You are not adopted. I have never heard anything so ridiculous. I shrunk into myself. She didn't think it was funny anymore. So Daddy was my target, if the whispers got to be too loud. We had a summertime habit of going on bike rides together after dinner, while poor Mom was stuck cleaning the kitchen. We had a particularly good ride one night, and Daddy decided we could go a little further, riding through the old village. <gasps> Those were my favorite rides because it was an adventure, and we could actually run into people we knew. We would wave and say, hey, and occasionally I would see a friend and get to chat for a minute. It was heaven. This is what it was like to live around people. Our rides led to moments of easy quiet, and the lack of eye contact made more difficult subjects easier to broach. Hey, Daddy. Hey, what? I was thinking about something the other day. We pedaled along. He wasn't taking any bait, so I had to follow through. I was just thinking that sometimes I feel so different from Jonathan. I was wondering if maybe I was adopted. Elizabeth, he sighed. Why are you always asking questions like this? Why can't we just have a nice quiet bike ride? That wasn't a no. Pedal on. Still my thoughts continued to nag me as I got older. I was convinced my parents were keeping something from me. But why? 
Maybe there was some dark mystery surrounding this alleged adoption that they were sworn to uphold. Surely I could crack this case. If my favorite literary character, the strawberry blonde Nancy Drew, could do it, so could I. I could investigate. I could talk to people. All I needed were my friends and a blue convertible, just like Nancy. So that's what I did. Minus the convertible and the good hair. First, I sought out documentation. Daddy was sitting in his recliner in the den after dinner, reading the evening paper. I sat on the couch next to him. Hey, Daddy. Hey, what? He asked from behind the paper. I know how you could get me to stop asking if I'm adopted. The paper came down. This again? Well, how about you show me my birth certificate? The paper went back up. Daddy! Well, I would, but I don't have it. It's at the office. You could get it. Paper folded back down. Elizabeth, I was trying to read the paper. I'm not going back out today. Well, you could bring it home tomorrow, though, right? Paper back up. Conversation over. Daddy proudly procured the secret document the next day, and much to my disappointment, it was not at all what I expected. There it was, official, and even dutifully notarized, my own parents' names as mother and father. I felt myself deflate. How could this be? This isn't right. He looked at me and smiled and said, There we are. Can we agree to close this subject for good? This wasn't right. How could I be so wrong? Where were all these feelings coming from? I ran my fingers over the raised seal, and holding back tears of frustration, I gave the document back to him. Okay, so let's just have a little aside moment right now. Seriously? Your daughter has been questioning her parentage for years. She's now to the point of asking for proof. And you don't stop as a parent and think, gee, honey, she sure is asking a lot of questions. Maybe we need to talk to her about this or call a doctor and see what a doctor thinks. Really? That wasn't happening? They really thought this would just disappear? I was 15 years old and full of all the teenage rebellion that makes every young girl such a joy to live with, but I was fueled with a deeper teenage angst. It wasn't enough that they didn't understand me or still thought of me as a baby or wouldn't let me have my freedom. I was clearly different from them. That's all there was to it. It was not a generational gap. It was a biological gap that could immediately be fixed if only I were in the right place. The old whispers were back in my head. That birth certificate was a forgery, they murmured in breathy voices. They are lying to you. You have to find the truth. You deserve to know who you are. Everything will be all right once you know the secret. You're not crazy. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 3. Don't forget to leave a little review wherever you're listening to the podcast. And have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Bye!